Welcome to this episode of the Coffee Break Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. From media layoffs to the COVID-19 outbreak, the news industry is in a frenzy. What do we do? Well, our guest today may have an answer. GQ columnist and one of the founders of the Save Journalism Project, Laura Bassett, joins the show. The Coffee Break starts right now. get to our guest in just a moment, but first, a quick word. Like most reporters these days, I've been covering the coronavirus. I'm discussing the impact of social distancing alongside the political and financial implications of this daunting public health crisis. I personally started writing about this in mid-January, mostly for outlets like the New York Observer and Ozzy. Finally, COVID-19 caught up with me. Three weeks ago, I got the virus. COVID-19 came on suddenly, or at least as far as I could tell. Originally, I thought the only fever I was going to get was cabin fever. I was wrong. I couldn't breathe. I was feverish. I was aching. I was fearful. I hid the severity from those I cared about. After all, I'm a reporter by trade. It could look like I was not practicing what I am preaching. At least that's what I told myself. It got bad. Bad enough that I questioned my own mortality, and I was devastated. When the stay-at-home orders came to New York, I was quick to take them seriously. So how did I get COVID-19? That's the question I've been asking myself. I'm really not sure. I went to the grocery store maybe twice since the outbreak began. Was the virus sitting on the surface of a cereal box I considered buying and then didn't actually buy? Maybe the virus was on top of a cranberry juice bottle. Maybe my roommates had it and were asymptomatic. Maybe the virus sat dormant in my system for weeks. Who knows? What's done is done. Many of you, unfortunately, will soon be asking yourself those same questions. Now I'm on the other side of the virus, and this comes with a new perspective on how to cover this thing. As a reporter, I've toyed between two major schools of thought in journalism. Should I be a fly on the wall? The rhetorical vessel for other people to tell their stories. Or should I be speaking as an authority for a subject I've personally experienced? More often than not, I align with the former. But in this case, it's the latter. Personally, I don't like to be part of the story. But in this context, it's different. This is a special case. I personally started with stomach systems and a tickle in my throat. My symptoms quickly escalated, adapting to the moment. It included a fever, a dry cough, shortness of breath, and a tightness in my chest. In the easier moments, the sensation felt similar to altitude sickness, and in others, it felt like a 400-pound weight was strapped to my chest. 
I was seeking stories about the virus in real time. I was seeking stories that outline the day-by-day -day and play-by-play -play recollection of symptoms. I sought stories on Twitter that gave a daily breakdown. I sought stories from health writers who documented their symptoms. Some reporters have led by example, adapting their coverage to this moment. Notably, CNN anchor Chris Cuomo chronicled his symptoms on air. Amy Vanderpool, who wrote about her daily symptoms on her Substack excuse me, newsletter, she wrote. Yahoo News national political reporter Brittany Shepard tweeted about her experience, starting a conversation about how she recovered. We need more stories like this. Editors, in this circumstance, please consider the power in numbers. Don't turn down stories because we, quote, have enough on this subject. These stories need to be consistent. They need to be apparent now. And after all this is said and done, we do not want people to forget and cause a second wave. This is unprecedented. As much as I love Zoom conferences as my primary medium for human connection, I'm kind of ready for this public health crisis to be over and return to normal life. But we need to make sure we are in the right place to do that. We can't jump too soon. Sure, this isn't a normal practice to just take almost anything that comes to you. It's, it's otherwise not even a rational approach. But nothing in this world is normal or business as usual. We need to put our own symptoms in context, and we need to outline when to seek medical attention. We need more personal reporting answering that question for each and every one of us alongside public health information. Our friends, loved ones, coworkers, and our neighbors could be next. We need to make sure we do everything in our power to make sure that people fundamentally understand this on the ground where we are. Now, I'm back to work, remotely of course, reporting on these stories with that in mind. I hope other reporters will follow suit. At the very least, these stories will help us understand how to cover a pandemic of this scale in the future. We can all hope that will never happen again. Now we head to our guest, Laura Bassett. We spoke via Zoom earlier this week. Here's our conversation. I just want to dive right in. Media layoffs have been a regular thing for the last you know, few years. Uh, more than that, we just saw a couple weeks ago, Bustle have some pretty significant layoffs across the board at a very difficult time to begin with. What can these publishers do? Like, what is the next step to have to for reporters, producers, editors, etc., uh, moving forward? What what needs to be done? 
Uh, well, look, Andy, it's not it's not that reporters or, or publishers or editors are doing anything wrong or need to be doing anything differently. I mean, especially now in the time of, uh, of, of, of this coronavirus crisis, traffic is way, way up. I mean, these stories are getting read more than ever. People are sitting at home um, on their computers reading these stories. The problem is the advertising funding is not coming in. I think there's uh, a few reasons for that. Uh, one is that advertisers are afraid to post ad or don't want to post ads next to coronavirus stories. Another thing is that the same problem that the, or the whole journalism industry has been seeing for the past few years, which is that big tech companies like Facebook and, and, and Google, we call them the duopoly, um, have a stranglehold on the digital ad market. And it's really difficult for uh, newspapers and, and media outlets to compete. I think in the immediate future, what needs to happen is that uh, the government needs to step in and provide a little bit of relief during this during this crisis, which is hitting journalism really hard. Obviously, uh, journalism is is crucial to democracy, and right now, especially local newspapers. I mean, people need this information more than ever, um, and so I know the Senate is considering including relief for journalists uh, in its next coronavirus relief package. I know the Democrats are pushing for that at least. Um, unclear whether it will happen. Uh, but also, you know, Facebook and Google need to step up and share the revenue they're getting with the actual people who are creating the content um, that they're hosting on their sites. So uh, there's a few external uh, solutions that need to happen um, not much more that reporters themselves can do. I mean, they're, they're working their butts off Is right now. Is there something reporters like myself uh, can do individually to protect ourselves, our work, uh, security, et cetera, uh, job security that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, our power is our platform, right? Um, and so this is what I, I was laid off from HuffPost that's uh, last January, which is which is why I started with, with John Stanton, why I started the Save Journalism Project. He was laid off from BuzzFeed. Um, and we, you know, as journalists, we're really trained not to make ourselves the story um, and not to talk of, not to advocate for anything, much less our own industry and our own, um, you know, financial well-being. Uh, but I think that has to change now because our industry is in crisis and no one else is going to fight for it besides us. So one thing we need to do is, is keep the conversation up, encourage people to subscribe, to, to pay for the paywall subscriptions, to subscribe to their local newspapers, um, keep up the conversation about what big companies like Facebook and Google are doing to the journalism industry, keep up the pressure on Congress to help us out right now in this special moment of need. Um, and basically basically do what we're doing, which is just elevate this conversation. I, I want to talk about the different models in terms of revenue. You know, there's, there's uh, a focus on advertising and there's, you know, this growing focus on solely subscription uh, models without advertising. And there's obviously, you know, a, a huge chunk of publishers that are in that in-between area. Uh, where do you think there's the most long-term success here? Um, you know, it's hard to say what can work in this country. I do think that there is a basic problem with a journalism. There's sort of a tension with, with journalism existing within a capitalist market. Um, we are not, newspapers are not set up to be big money makers and to compete with, with big tech companies. They're just not. Um, and so there are some papers like the Texas Observer that have sort of moved to a nonprofit model. Um, there's, you know, more publicly funded journalism like NPR and PBS. I think that 
that it's a great idea. I think it would be complicated in this country, the politics of it, especially under the current administration being so unfriendly to journalists and, and sowing um, distrust in the media. It would be hard for anyone to sort of stomach their tax dollars going to an outlet um, that isn't saying what they want this outlet to be saying. So I think there's a sort of a lot of challenges and it's a very complicated question. Um, and in the meantime, uh, the, what needs to happen is that, is that Facebook and Google need to be investigated for, um, for this monopoly they have on the digital ad market. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it was, it's really interesting, uh, that, you know, looking at face, uh, just Facebook in particular, how they try to make this argument that they are, you know, like one day they're like, hey, we're just a platform. And then the next they're like, you know, we're a publisher. Um, when, but when they get in trouble, they just kind of say, hey, we're a, we're a platform. Um, it, it baffled me the other day. I saw that the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, was doing like a remote interview with Dr. Fauci. Uh, well, I guess that was a couple weeks ago. But it, it, it was just, when I saw that, I was like, you, you know, you can't, you can't really do both. Uh, if, if the things that Facebook got in trouble for, if a, if a, a news outlet got, uh, you know, uh, was found to be doing that, there could be a defamation lawsuit or something like that. So, you know, I, I, personally, I've just been so shocked about it. Uh, it is it is really confusing considering that Facebook has made Facebook and Google both have made so much money off of simply just hosting content from actual journalists outside of itself um, and really stealing money from from those outlets because uh, because of the way that they build these caches of personal information on all of their users and they have such massive amounts of users it's just way more financially incentivizing for an advertiser to post an ad on Facebook next to the article than on you know the Huffington Post uh, homepage or or in the New York Times or whatever, and so they've been sort of slowly uh, killing journalism. And so to pretend like they are suddenly creators of news themselves um, is certainly a, a huge problem and a, and a conflict of interest. And I don't think they're fooling anyone. I also don't think they're fooling anyone with these little you know throwing twenty five million dollars to journalism as as charity and, and pretending like they're a friend of the industry. Um, that's that's like finding pennies in the couch for Mark Zuckerberg. Um, it's it's really nothing. It's a it's a PR stunt. Uh, and I don't think that journalists should well, fall for it. I guess at the same token, I just want to talk about these big billionaires that are buying news agencies. Uh, the question is, is there, you know, a big criticism that like the Washington Post, for example, gets is that Jeff Bezos owns it or owns the Washington Post. Uh, and there's that, you know, there, there's the conflict of interest and in, there's the perceived conflict of interest in reporting. Uh, do you think that that's valid? Because I, I don't. Uh, yeah, right. I don't think it's the Washington Post's fault um, or, any, or the fault of, of anyone on their editorial team that, that Jeff Bezos owns them. Uh, or that they have to that any news outlet has to rely on a rich person to prop them up. I mean, that's that's the situation we're in. We're we are in a financial crisis, and so 
um, it, whoever is willing to, to pay for the jobs to continue, for the reporting to continue, I mean, like we kind of have to take it. Obviously, obviously it's not ideal uh, for the CEO of Amazon to be owning a major national newspaper. Um, nobody would choose that if they had other choices. But I really think that, uh, you know, the Washington Post has still run negative stories on Amazon, maybe not as many as they would have. I don't have sort of an inside view on whether he has any kind of sway over them editorially. I don't think a big billionaire would buy a newspaper if he didn't intend to have some kind of effect or control over the conversation. Um, but I certainly wouldn't criticize the newspaper well, for it. I guess one of the things and the criticisms and how I personally try to respond to that is the comparison of like, a billionaire buying a, a car that is not something that you would drive on the street, you know, that's not feasible. Like economically, it's a very bizarre choice for them to buy a news network, right? Financially speaking. Right. But when they do buy the news network, they're gonna like, like a, a really expensive fancy car, they're gonna take care of it properly. But when they start losing money, you know, that's the first thing they're going to get rid of is that, you know, over the top extravagant expense that that doesn't make sense. They buy the car to show off that they can afford doing that. It's, a, you know, an influence to show that they can afford that, not necessarily using the platform as that influence. Uh, is that, in your view, a fair metaphor? Oh, the car. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I agree with you that, that they, they wouldn't buy it for any financial reasons. Obviously, they're, they're, it's not going to be profitable. You know, I worked at HuffPost. We were bought by Verizon and Verizon essentially wrote us off as a charity by the end. I mean, they were making zero dollars from us. And and as we've seen with with like Sports Illustrated, which was doing such great work, a prestigious um, a prestigious longtime magazine that that just got gutted, um, and you know they laid off a bunch of wonderful long form writers and replaced them with hundreds of contractors, um, and just basically destroyed what Sports Illustrated was, uh, trying to make money from it. Um, I do think that that's obviously that's obviously a problem. I just don't know, um, and, and I also agree with you that they don't buy it for money; they buy it for the status. Um, but I also think you know you really. Why would you buy, you know, that you can buy a sports team for status? Why would you buy the Washington Post if you didn't want to have some kind of influence um, on the news or, or some kind of influence over coverage of your company? I mean, I don't, maybe I'm being too, too skeptical here, but um, I don't know. I, it, I just think it's complicated. Okay. Um, okay. The other thing, so... So uh, one of the other th things that the journalism industry reporters are really struggling with uh, is that whether the criticism is valid or not, there's a uh, decline in trust for journalists. How do you think that individual reporters or publishers editors, producers, et cetera, can help rectify that problem? I, that is another complicated question. I think that, um, you know, when the president of the United States uh, is using his platform and, and backed 
by you know, Republican senators like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz um, are literally saying, or at least the, Trump is literally saying the media is, is the enemy of the people. Um, and, you know, Marco Rubio is saying that we take glee and delight in reporting bad coronavirus numbers, which is just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we're getting attacked from the highest level of government. And I think that's what's obviously sowing so much distrust in the media. I don't think it's anything that, that journalists did or, or didn't do. And I think that the, the problem journalists are facing right now is whether to, uh, is what objectivity looks like. Um, in such a strange time with a, with a reality TV show president who's literally attacking us and literally fighting with journalists at, at news conferences and saying, you should be covering me positively. You should be congratulating me. Um, obviously, that's not what fair journalism looks like. Um, he's really thrown into question uh, what, what objectivity is. Is it saying, you know, Trump says this, but doctors say this? Uh, or is it Trump lied and said this, you know, um, and, and you say the latter and, and there will be people that applaud you for, for being honest. And then there will be people who say that you're fake news, no matter what you do, no matter what you say. Um, the problem is, is the leadership right now. So um, I, I really don't know how journalists themselves can stop people. And literally, no matter what we say, people will say we're fake news right now. Um, well, there's, in my you know, it's the, the, the saying you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Uh, I, I think really applies here. But at the same time, trust towards journalistic institutions have been declining uh, for decades. The, you know, the fact of the matter is, at least with the Trump administration, they're kind of uh, invoking this lowest common denominator uh, against journalistic entities. Uh, but it's it's not like other administrations were particularly friendly to, uh, you know, journalistic institutions uh, in the past. It's, I mean, it's more extreme now. But, the, you know, the fact of the matter is how do reporters maintain those individual relationships uh, and build that trust with readers? I mean, the only way to do it is to continue reporting the facts as best as we can and, and to continue uh, writing what's true. I think obviously one big problem right now is the is the, a heavy reliance on um, anonymous sources uh, and that can tend to sow a lot of uh, sow a lot of distrust. And I don't think anonymous sources are going anywhere anytime soon because a lot of times it's the only way you can get information from people. Um, I mean, what do you think? What, what is your answer to that question? Uh, I mean, there is... I, I think a large criticism of journalism and journalistic entities is that we are held up in our newsrooms. We're not talking to individual people in the same way. Uh, there is there was a recent study uh, that um, suggested that that said that the majority of Americans have never met or talked to a journalist. I think that there are ways that we can help bridge that gap. Maybe it's taking reporting trips uh, to various locations and just kind of, you know, setting up in a coffee shop in Omaha, Nebraska and allowing people to come up and talk to us. Uh, I think there are uh, avenues that we can explore to help build that trust. I mean, if somebody knows you as a person, maybe there's a way to have more people advocate that you are a fair person, that you are actually working in the best interest of people. Uh, 
I mean, I've never met a journalist in my life of any network, uh, any publication who is, you know, actively doing things to, you know, uh, stow or sow division uh, amongst uh, an audience. But there is that, you know, consistent conversation coming from, uh, you know, a, a lot of viewers. I don't think it's accurate, but I mean, you, you can't change somebody's feelings uh, on that. Yeah, well, you you actually bring up a good a good point. Um, and, and I think, I, I don't think that means, you know, well, the, the point is that a lot of media is, co is concentrated in the Beltway and in New York and, um, and not getting around uh, to talk to everyone else in the country. And, you know, th that creates a bubble where, um, where reality isn't as it, it's perceived. Uh, but I think the answer is to invest in, in local news. And a huge problem is local newspapers going under. It, it's creating these vast news deserts across the country. Um, and it's those local reporters that need to be sitting in coffee shops in Omaha, Nebraska, talking to people, getting the news stories out there that then, you know, the New York Times or bigger national outlets pick up. I don't think it's on, you know, every New York newspaper to send someone to. I mean, it's, it's great if you, if you have the resources to say, but you can't send someone to every city in the country. That's why local newspapers are so necessary. That's why we need them. Um, and so I think that's the decline in local news is really is really breaking down that trust. I, I agree with you that having people who've never met a reporter before is a huge problem. Um, and, and as an example, uh, there was all this glowing media coverage of, of Cuomo and, and uh, his response to the, to the coronavirus situation and much less to other governors like uh, Inslee um, and Whitmer who are doing really great jobs. Um, and that's probably because Cuomo is literally the governor of a lot of reporters. I mean, he's my personal governor. I live in Brooklyn, you know? Um, and so if you have all of the media concentrated in two cities, it certainly skews uh, coverage in a certain direction. And, and yeah, that's a huge problem. And part of why our project is so focused on, you know, restoring life to, to local to newspapers. To be fair, New York is the epicenter of the outbreak. Right, but I mean, Inslee is Washington was uh, an epicenter of the outbreak before New York was, and um, and Inslee has been providing excellent leadership. And you hear his name, you know, one out of every four hundred times you hear Cuomo's fair. name. Uh, fair. Uh, so uh, I guess is where what can individual can in, what can individual publishers do? Is there something that they can? I mean, I know that's a broad question. Let's talk about companies like. Vox, Vice, Bustle, those kind of BuzzFeed, uh, these bigger national digital media players, what can they do? Because the conversations about layoffs are, are often focused around, I'm mean, not going to lie, there, there's a handful of companies where you hear about layoffs on a fairly regular basis, uh, like, like, like Bustle, yeah, uh, like BuzzFeed, uh, just like just, you know, to, to name a few. What can these publishers do differently to, to essentially not do that? I mean, it's, it's, it's not their, they don't want to be doing that. It's not their decision to be laying people off. If you, if you don't have the money, if your budget is being cut from up top, there's really nothing you can do. When I got laid off, uh, Verizon had directed HuffPost to lay off 10% of its employees. There was literally nothing it could do. 
Um, you know, I think I, I keep thinking of this bill that's moving through Congress. Obviously, it's stalled now because of uh, coronavirus, but it would allow media, it would allow news publishers to um, be exempt from antitrust laws for four years so that they could organize together against companies like Google and Facebook. Uh, imagine if, you know, all of the all of the newspapers got together and said, none of our stories are going on Facebook. None of us are, are going to none of us are going to work with Google or Facebook at all unless you give us X share of these ad profits that should be ours anyway. Um, I mean, I, I think they have to work together and not as individual um, outlets. They, they're much stronger if they if they sort of take a, a stance as as an industry um, and, and fight for their own um, financial well-being. In the context of the Save Journalism project, uh, does would you say your values and of the and mission of the organization is more targeted for publishers, for their parent companies, for individual journalists? Like, who is your who are you trying to get the message out to? Oh, everyone. Um, we are trying to raise awareness of this conversation to everyone. Of course, we specifically advocate for laid off journalists. We do have a resource page um, at savejournalism.org. We have a uh, um, we have a page that that sort of, you know, it, 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 if, if you've recently gotten laid off, it's helpful for, for mental health, for looking for jobs, for all of those kinds of things. We started a freelance project where we pay people um, to go out and report on the ways that that big tech is impacting the news when report on, on these news deserts and the issues we're trying to talk about. Um, so we are actually employing freelancers now um, and we raise some money for that. Um, we're also advocating obviously for the in industry as a whole and it's and it's financial health as well. So we are we're trying to hit this from a lot of different angles. Um, and we don't necessarily have all the solutions yet, but uh, the first step is really getting people like you um, to be talking about it on their podcasts and to be getting people to be writing about it. Um, because obviously like in, in my, I'm from Louisiana, when the, when the New Orleans Times-Picayune sort of folded into the Baton Rouge Advocate, people were stunned and upset. And it's like, well, nobody had even realized that the, the Times-Picayune was struggling and they didn't miss it until it was gone. Um, and so I think that people need to start talking about this now before they wake up one day and don't have a local newspaper or paper and are like, what happened? You know, so, so we're trying to, um, we're trying to be that conversation starter. Absolutely. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, uh, but I, I want to talk about your piece uh, in GQ uh, about Chris Matthews. Uh, after, you know, not long after you published that piece, uh, Matthews announced that he was retiring, quote unquote. Uh, do you think, what, do you, what is your view on MSNBC's response to that? Uh, I think they did the right thing. Um, I don't know internally what happened after my piece was published. They never gave me a statement. They, you know, he said he was retiring voluntarily. My guess is that it was something more like him being pushed out. But again, that's a guess because uh, I don't know. Um, but I think that, you know, as I made clear in my piece, he was being inappropriate with women for two decades. Um, I don't, I don't think you know, his interaction with me on its own was a fireable offense. But I do think that it was long past time for him to not have a, a primetime show and not be sitting there after the debates interviewing uh, female candidates in particular. 
uh, when he has problematic attitudes towards women. So um, if if what happened was that MSNBC kind of uh, reached their breaking point with him and, and pushed him out, then I believe it was the right uh, thing to listeners, do. Listeners, if you're not familiar with the piece, uh, it came out February 28th uh, on GQ.com. Um, it was, uh, what was the title of the piece? Uh, I don't even remember. Oh, I think it was, I had my own sexist encounter with Chris Matthews what or something like that. What can other news agencies take away from that? I mean, we've seen uh, continued allegations of, uh, you know, ab abuse within organizations for several years now. I mean, the Me Too movement really uh, was a catalyst here. What, what can you, you think other news organizations can take away from MSNBC's response to this? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, news organizations need to be careful because they're full of, of journalists and, and the, this behavior is eventually going to get out. And the longer you have protected someone, the worse it looks for you. So uh, as soon as you see someone behaving in, inappropriately towards women or anyone uh, in the newsroom acting in unprofessional ways, uh, take swift action and, and, and don't protect them for two decades because it's going to come back and bite you. Okay, um, well, those are all the questions I have. Thank you so much for joining the coffee break. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's episode of the coffee break. We'll see you right back here next week. For the Believe Podcast Network, I'm Eddie Hirschfeld in New York. Thank you.